0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 3rd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. <music> So this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we'll begin in Japan, looking at the aftermath of both the plane collision and the earthquake. As Russia steps up its bombardment of Ukraine, we'll get the latest from the ground. Yasmin Abdelmajid will join me to look through the international papers. What do you have for us, Yasmin?
1: We'll look at the latest updates from Sudan. The Washington Post and lots of other places have written about the resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay, so we'll have a look at that. And we'll touch on a piece on theatre etiquette.
0: Excellent stuff. We'll also hear about a controversial deal between Ethiopia and Somaliland. Also, coming up.
2: We are in real danger of sleepwalking into a new nuclear arms race. One that would exceed in cost and in risk what we lived through during the Cold War.
0: Going nuclear in 2024. We'll hear from the US diplomat Thomas Countryman about Russia and China's arsenal expansion. And finally, why can't Swiss children tell the time? We'll find out ahead on The Globalist Live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Israel has killed the deputy leader of Hamas, Saleh al aruri in a drone strike in Beirut, according to Lebanese and Palestinian security sources. The United States has reached a deal to extend its military presence at a base in Qatar for another 10 years. And Donald Trump has appealed a decision from Maine's top election official disqualifying him from the state's Republican presidential primary ballot. Do stay tuned to Monaco Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, double disasters have hit Japan in the last couple of days. First, the 7.6 magnitude earthquake that killed at least 55 people on New Year's Day. And then the collision at Haneda Airport between a Japan Airlines Airbus A350 aircraft, landing from a short-haul domestic flight, and a Bombardier-built Dash 8 cargo craft, which was heading to the west coast to deliver aid to those caught up in the earthquake. All 379 passengers and crew on the the airbus evacuated safely after the jet hurtled down the runway in flames. But five crew on board the cargo plane are feared dead. Well, I'm joined now by Kenji Hall, a journalist and Monocle contributor based in Tokyo. Kenji, it's lovely to have you back on the show. Can we begin at the airport? Is there any more clarity on how this accident happened?
3: No, at the moment, investigators say the cause remains unclear. It's not really clear at this point whether the airport's flight control mistakenly cleared two aircraft to be on the runway at the same time, or whether this was simply pilot error. Um, As you know, only one plane is allowed to be on the runway at a time. So, uh, and the JAL plane's crew had have told authorities that they received landing clearance. And if that's true, the question is, why was the Coast Guard aircraft on the runway at all? Mm.
0: So, I mean, there's bound to be some kind of investigation now.
3: Yes, currently the Japan Transport Safety Board uh, is and has examined the aircraft wreckage. It's retrieved the flight and and voice recorders from the Coast Guard aircraft, and it's still searching for those from the Jiao plane that Mm. arrived um, from Sapporo.
0: Now, how long did the crew have to evacuate the passengers on the gel plane, and how was it managed so successfully?
3: Yeah, that that those details are just now emerging. Um, the airplane, as you as you said, was uh, in flames when it stopped on the runway. Uh, passengers had minutes, perhaps ten minutes, to get off of that plane. Um, there is video footage from inside the plane taken by passengers showing that smoke and um, and accounts have said that um, the air was also uh, filled with the smell of fuel. So uh, it was uh, quite hectic, um, quite panicky on board.
0: Mm. And I wonder if the airport, which is, I think, the third busiest in the world, is it still closed? What's been the impact on travel?
3: No, so all four runways were immediately closed after the accident. Um, Haneda is, as you say, Japan's busiest airport. It handles more than a 1,000 domestic flights and 240 international flights a day. That's about 230,000 travelers uh, a day during its peak. So it's a very, very busy airport. Um, as I said, there are four runways. All four of them were shut down immediately after the accident. Three of the, of the uh, runways were reopened uh, later last night.
0: So we know that the cargo flight was on the way to the earthquake zone, the centre of which was the Notta Peninsula. Have other first responders managed to get through? We understand there's a lot of damage to the roads.
3: There's a lot of damage to roads. Transport has been disrupted um, to the point that the Japanese Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, has opened a sea route to deliver aid. Um, We're getting reports now that some larger trucks have been able to reach some of the hardest hit areas, but uh, landslides have blocked some of the roads to these remote areas.
0: And is it beginning to become apparent just how much damage was caused by the quake?
3: Well, we're still getting reports... uh, Due to the isolation of some of these communities, it's, it's difficult to reach them. And so um, the reports are still trickling in as to how much damage has been caused. Um, also today, uh, we've had heavy rains in the region in the Noto Peninsula area. So uh, that has hampered uh, a lot of the rescue and uh, aid relief efforts.
0: And I'm sure it's quite cold there too at the moment.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, the temperatures are uh, near freezing today.
0: So we understand that over 57,000 people have had to be evacuated from the region. Where have they gone and how are they being looked after?
3: Right. So some of those evacuations uh, actually have uh, been, those evacuation orders have been lifted. Um, Most of those people have uh, taken shelter in local gymnasiums, in schools. Um, my cousin and his family, actually, uh, they live in Kanazawa, which is in Ishikawa Prefecture. They had to uh, evacuate to a, lo- a local school on higher ground immediately uh, after the uh, evacuation orders were issued due to the possibility of tsunami. Uh,
0: but that tsunami risk is, is is now gone.
3: Has been right downgraded to an advisory only.
0: Mm. So are, are rescuers still trying to get people out from the rubble? Are there people still trapped?
3: Yes, there are. There, We still have reports of people trapped in toppled buildings. Uh, and because, as I mentioned, because of the rain, it's made it extremely difficult. Also, uh, we still have aftershocks uh, from that initial uh, massive earthquake. So um, that is also making it very difficult for rescue uh, efforts at this point.
0: What's been the government's response?
3: Well, the government has uh, dispatched the self-defense forces, which is Japan's military, to help out uh, with the um, delivery of aid. At this point, um, as I said, much of the transport uh, to and from the region has been disrupted, so it's, it's been uh, challenging getting a lot of that aid into the area. Um, the closest airport to the hardest hit area is Noto Airport, and that airport is closed and remains closed until tomorrow.
0: So. I mean, Japan has obviously had earthquakes before. Uh, how does it prepare for, for, for them? And, and has the past experience helped in this instance?
3: Well, absolutely. Japan has some of the world's strictest building codes to ensure that new buildings are quake-resistant. Uh, obviously, that does not apply to the oldest structures. And in this case, uh, those old structures were among the, the worst hit uh, and the most badly damaged. Um you know, among the lessons that we've learned from past uh, earthquakes, and specifically the one in 2011, when a magnitude 9.0 quake um, hit and then triggered a massive tsunami, um, that after since that one, um, the news anchors on the public broadcaster NHK have been very, very urgently um, urging people to flee to higher ground whenever there's a tsunami warning. And in this case, um, the Anchors were practically shouting for people to flee to higher ground, saying, "Remember what happened in 2011. Uh, remember what happened in 2011." So um, some of those lessons were directly applied in this case.
0: Mm. And tell me about the mood there then today. I mean, it, clearly somber because of the earthquake, but but a lot of celebration about the um, the, the the safe evacuation of those passengers and crew from the plane.
3: I wouldn't call it celebration, really. I mean, what we see is, you know, this is Japan's New Year's holiday, which is one of the few times during the year when businesses come to, you know, business comes to a complete halt. Most people take days to spend time with their families. Um, The emperor and empress normally give a New Year's appearance. That was cancelled. And so, you know, some of the celebratory nature of this particular holiday has been dampened.
0: Mm -hmm. And how are the papers reporting everything that's going on?
3: Oh, it's such an ongoing crisis at this point that, you know, um, they're they're basically um, updating most of the information on their websites at this point.
0: Kenji, lovely to speak to you again. Thank you very much indeed. That was Kenji Hall speaking to us from Tokyo, and this is the Globalist.
4: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: It's 11 minutes past nine in Kiev, 7-11 here in London. Russia has intensified its attacks on Ukraine over the New Year period with President Vladimir Putin warning on Monday that a Ukrainian airstrike on the Russian city of Belgorod, which Moscow said killed 25 civilians, would not go unpunished. Accordingly, missiles and drones have been raining down on the country, particularly on the cities of Kiev and Kharkiv, striking many civilian targets. Well, joining me now from Chernivtsky is Olga Tokoriak, who's a Ukrainian journalist and an Academy fellow at Chatham House. Olga, can you bring us up to date with the latest on Russia's attacks?
5: Yes. Hello. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, well, yesterday's attack on Ukraine was one of the most large scale attacks since the beginning of the war. Uh, so according to the latest figures, there are uh, 130 people who were injured and five people were uh, killed in this attack. It was uh, mostly targeting the capital, Kyiv, and also Kharkiv, one of uh, Ukraine's largest cities, uh, in Russia in the East. Um, And uh, according to Ukrainian officials, Russians used uh, basically the whole arsenal of various missiles and drones in this attack. And it's only thanks to the capacity of Ukrainian air defense that the casualties figure is not that big. Well, it clearly uh, is an indication that Russia wants to exhaust Ukraine's air defense. This attack follows another previous one uh, of a similar scale, even larger scale, uh, that happened on the 29th of December, just two days before New Year. And actually, that attack preceded Belgorod. So, you know, it's uh, actually we are not sure whether it's a retaliation or not, because Russia has been attacking Ukraine massively before. Um, so, um It seems that Russia is really willing to exhaust Ukraine's air defence with various missiles, with various types of missiles, with a huge quantity of drones that it launches, Um, probably having in mind that um, now the aid to Ukraine and its resupply of air defence is hanging in the balance as the aid package is stuck in the US Congress, which is still on holiday.
0: Mm. Uh, How much infrastructure has been damaged? Are services working?
5: Um, Well, this attacks, uh, what we know so far, that um, they were, they hit these missiles and drones. They hit uh, many residential areas in uh, Ukraine's largest cities. Uh, Kiev and Kharkiv, and the attack on December 29th also targeted Dnipro, Odessa, Zaporizhia, and many other uh, Ukrainian cities. Um, And many residential areas, as I said, were hit. Um, there was also damage uh, yesterday in Kyiv to um, electricity supply and water supply. So for several hours, um, hundreds of thousands of Cave residents were without electricity and water. Now the temperature in Kyiv is starting to plunge. Uh, frost uh, frost has be- have begun after uh, unusually warm um, weeks of. Winter weather, now uh, it's getting colder, and many people will not have windows in their homes after this huge attack. So, even when Ukraine air defense is working, you know, it's still quite scary because the houses are shaking, the whole huge residential blocks are shaking, the windows are um, being blown out, and uh, there is still massive destruction. There were fires yesterday in many parts of Kyiv, the air quality as a result is very bad, and in general it has a psychological impact on the population.
0: Mm, Of course. Uh, We know that Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, said the West could take action. He's laid out five measures which would help Ukraine. What is it that the country needs?
5: Yes. Yeah, so uh, the, uh, as a reaction to yesterday's, to the latest Russia's attack, uh, yesterday, the foreign minister called on Ukraine's uh, foreign um, partners to uh, supply Ukraine with more weapons and precisely additional air defense systems, as well as combat drones, but also uh, long range missiles that would be able to hit Russian launching sites, because it doesn't really make sense to just, you know, take down the missiles that are already in Ukraine. Russia yesterday used even hypersonic missiles that are very difficult to uh, detect, to intercept. It's even difficult to for people to seek shelter because the speed uh, of the flight of this missile is... is well, supersonic is mm. very high. Um, so it, it would make more sense to take down Russian launching sites. Uh, but also what Kuleba said importantly, I think, and that's something that Ukrainian government and experts have been stressing recently, that the West needs to seize Russian frozen assets and give this money to Ukraine in a situation when there are debates in the U.S. over in the next military package for Ukraine. Uh, this could be a solution. You know, if uh, U.S. taxpayers do not want to uh, finance uh, the resistance of Ukraine anymore. or there are debates about that. The solution could be in seizing 300 billions of frozen Russian assets and giving this money to Ukraine so that Ukraine can, uh, you know, sustain its military effort. Mm.
0: Would you say, Olga, that this war is turning in Russia's favour? well uh
5: there is much debate about that uh it might i I would say that at the moment it isn't but it might uh in this year that has just started and russia clearly is counting on the exhaustion on the on the war fatigue in the west on the fact that uh, there might be less aid to ukraine Uh, but and also that there might be some people with an illusion in the west that russia somehow can be negotiated with that russia can be trusted there were some publications in the media that putin might be open to ceasefire fire and so on but we've seen in the past five six days that uh, russia is clearly not ready to uh, back down from its intent to destroy ukraine this massive attacks on ukraine that killed dozens of people yesterday five people died but on december 26 Twenty-nine. I'm sorry. More than sixty people were killed. So with these attacks, Russia clearly indicates that it still wants to destroy Ukraine. And believing that uh, you know some sort of negotiation of ceasefire can stop it, I think, is delusional.
0: You made mention of of how this makes people feel, and I know you've just travelled back to Ukraine. I wondered if you could tell us about that journey and how you're finding the mood there and the mindset amongst these amidst these renewed attacks.
5: Well, definitely, uh, you know, people are more tired. What has been going on for almost two years now, many people have lost their loved ones, many people have lost their homes, many people were, were forced to change their life drastically. Even those people who are temporarily abroad, but then returned to Ukraine, and there are many of those they still find it hard to leave under the missiles with their children. You know, have many friends uh, in, in Kyiv, in various parts of Ukraine, who returned from other countries with their children, uh, who are very much hopeful and they believe in Ukraine's victory. But uh, I think they are also frustrated that um, Ukraine does not get as much um, assistance as it should, that there is still no sense of urgency in many Western capitals, that this war is not just the war for Ukraine, that this is something that, uh, you know that Russia is a threat not just to Ukraine and um, basically there is this feeling that Ukraine is is not on its own but uh, Ukraine definitely suffering the most and, and there is frustration that now Ukraine is also not in the headlines as it used to be before.
0: Mm. Olga thank you thank you very much indeed that's Olga Tokarek speaking to us from Ukraine. Now still to come on the program... What time is it? Teachers worry that Swiss teens don't know. This is The Globalist. Well, let's continue now with today's newspapers. And joining me in the studio is Yasmin Abdel-Majid, who's a Sudanese-Australian broadcaster and author, looking resplendent as always, Yasmin, Thank you, Thank you for coming in.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: Uh, Let's start with, well, it's not exactly your home country, but your your ethnic heritage, should we call
1: it? Yeah, so, I mean, I was born in Sudan, and I think many Sudanese would say that their hearts, no matter where they end up in the world, their hearts always remain in Sudan. Um, And unfortunately, Sudan has been in the headlines, uh, well, for most of 2023, for for the wrong reasons. But we're hoping maybe that things might be different in 2024. So the Sudan Tribune has reported that an agreement has been reached between the rapid... uh, support forces, so the the militia, and a group of civilians known as Taqaddum which is held by, uh, headed by the Prime Minister, or former Prime Minister, Abdullah Hamdouk. Um, they've reached an agreement in Addis Ababa which may or may not mean anything but ultimately the RSF has has pledged to sign an unconditional cessation of hostilities immediately release more than 450 detainees and facilitate unfettered humanitarian access so the the idea is that this agreement would, would be taken to the Sudanese armed forces so the so Hemeti the head of the paramilitary would be face to face with Burhan with the head of the Sudanese armed forces and this would lead to actual uh, ceasefire on the ground. However, it's an interesting agreement because many of the... um, There have been declarations of ceasefire before, all... All of them have been ignored. And the the sense at the moment by analysts and by activists is that this is a real test for the gr- the civilian group taqaddum because they may be used, they may be being used by Ahmeti in the Rapid Support Forces to position himself as a politician, position himself as somebody who can have these sorts of conversations. But if, if this agreement is thrown out in the same way that every other agreement has been thrown out or every other... Um, conversation uh, about ceasefire has been thrown out, then it essentially destroys any credibility that the taqaddum the civilian group, has.
0: Mm. So we know that there are a couple of speeches from uh, military figures which have been widely criticised. Why is that?
1: Yes, yeah, so... Um, The 1st of January is Sudan's Independence Day, and we saw speeches from Burhan, the head of the Sudanese Armed Forces, and Himeti, and also, you know, um, UN envoys, etc. Essentially, Burhan seemed to have quite contradictory uh, arguments or positions in in his speeches. On one hand, he was sort of calling for peace, and on the other hand, he was calling for war. And what what we're seeing is this tension within the Sudanese Armed Forces between um, the old school Bashir-era Islamists, as well as, you know, Burhan kind of trying to hold on to power. So he's trying to position himself as the person who can maintain a hold over Sudan, um, while also trying to position, to, to indicate to the international community that, you know, he's still um, the person who is in charge and he is the person to negotiate with, etc. It's, I mean, of course, everything that is being said in um on, on a pulpit completely disconnected from what's happening on the ground because, as we know, regardless of what Himeti might be talking about, and Himeti, the head of the, the Sudanese um, the Rapid Support Forces, has actually been travelling around the region. He's visited Djibouti, he's visited uh, Uganda, I believe, and a number of other places, meeting with heads of state, essentially positioning himself as the politician. Regardless of, of what he's doing in the diplomatic sphere, on the ground, his forces are still still in conflict, are still um, committing crimes and so on. And so so there is this disconnect, I think, and that's what many activists have pointed out, that regardless of, of what both the head of the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces are, are sort of saying in the diplomatic sphere, what is happening on the ground is completely different.
0: Yeah. Let's turn to the Washington Post now. Uh, and this is about Claudine Gay, who was the president of Harvard, who's now resigned. Now, this is a story that goes back, uh, well, I directly to, to Israel and, and, and Hamas' conflict. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, so this is quite interesting. Claudine Gay uh, was celebrated as, you know, the first black president of Harvard. Um, she only came into power in July 2023. So she actually now, this it means that this is the shortest tenure for, for a president, um, for a Harvard president. But she resigned amid mounting criticism, not only of um, her dealings with anti-Semitism in, in Harvard but also uh, criticism around her scholarship actually and what I what I found quite interesting about the story is the combination of both uh, pressure from you know what we would call quote unquote liberal uh the the liberal side of politics as well as the right-wing side of politics because Claudine Gay herself was not necessarily somebody who was pro-Palestinian, right? She had condemned, you know, phrases like from the river to the sea. She had created an anti-Semitism task force. So as soon as, you know, after October 7, 2023, she really came out um, as somebody who was seen to be positioning herself to support um, the the Israeli kind of... um, Students and so on, but it wasn't seen as enough. And so, regardless of what she was doing, it wasn't seen as enough. And then she had this case, this court case, where she was asked about um, she was asked about a particular phrase. What she would do um, if if people on the campus said particular things, and and her response was seen as you know as as not enough. She positioned, she sort of responded in this kind of loyally way, and people were like, "You must be, you know, this is not good enough." But again, what was interesting is that this, you know, the the response to her came from the democratic side of things, which would usually be seen as supportive of the Harvard president. Now, once that critique started to begin, and yes, the Harvard Corporation, you know, the the board of of Harvard was seen to be supporting her, then you know, right wing um, and Republican supporting um, uh, forces in in the U.S. started saying, okay, well, let's look at what else we can find on her, and and ideas of plagiarism and critiques of you know all the way back into her dissertation in 1997 came up and so it was this combination it wasn't just a sort of right-wing push it was this combination of um, critique and pushback from from the left and critique and pushback from the right I think that essentially that eventually toppled her.
0: Perfect storm, caught yes, in the middle. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, how? How? Yeah. How sad, really. Mm. Um, let's <laughs> let's go to this great theatre story you
1: found. Yes. Yeah, so Andrew Scott, who might be known to listeners as the hot priest from Fleabag, <laughs> but is as well known for for many other um, many other roles, especially uh, on the West End, has was was um, recently shared that he halted a Hamlet soliloquy after, and I could not believe this headline, after a theatre-goer in the middle of the theatre used a laptop, pulled out a laptop to send an email. And... I mean I, I have you what kind have you seen this kind of behavior in 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 the theater Georgina? I mean that's extraordinary isn't it just? I mean I think I mean I've I've heard phones go off and so on and people come in late but what I the, the you know the first line of this article I I I laughed out loud to BCC or not to BCC <laughs> that was the question facing a theater goer watching Andrew Scott's performance of Hamlet. And so you know this is a piece really talking about um theater etiquette at the moment and And apparently, you know, I think there was some survey that said 90% of theatre venue employees had experienced or witnessed unacceptable audience behaviour, including assaults, vandalism and racist language. What is happening in the theatre?
0: Well, I mean, that's really interesting because I do think it's about the democratisation of Mm. theatre. The fact that it is being, that the appeal has broadened, that that perhaps the, 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 has the bar dropped in terms of... (laughs) The bar
1: has changed, maybe?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of populist entertainment Mm. now, which maybe appeals to a different kind of person and incorporating alcohol and all the rest of it Oh, and indeed, dancing in the aisles right. has yeah. become has part changed. of it.
1: Yeah, and maybe maybe the experience of the theatre is is more akin to going to the cinema in some people's mind than it is, you know, sort of sitting down and listening to a lecture. I don't know, yeah. but I do think or going to a karaoke bar right. and singing <laughs> <Yeah>. along—that <laughs> is true. There, I have been to some shows where they actively encourage you to get up. I I went to an immersive show recently, and I spent all my time being sort of pushed from one place to the other. I just thought, you know what? All I want to do is sit down and quietly watch somebody. Else perform. I don't want to be part of the performance.
0: <laughs> and you know, I also think it's about it's about um, celebrity because mm. Andrew Scott, we can celebrate him as a great Shakespearean actor and go and see his Hamlet because that's what we want to see. Or we can go and see him because look, it's the hot priest of exactly. Fleabag, exactly. and that's a completely different audience demographic.
1: Precisely, and this is also quite interesting. I think when you know when you have shows that are that have. TV audiences, whether it's, you know, um, I'm thinking of The Time Traveller's Wife, which was a book then adapted into a film, or um, the name has completely escaped me, but it's a, a 70s show um, on Netflix that has like four kids. Do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely not. <laughs> Sorry. Stranger Stranger things. Stranger things. The name is completely but yes, Stranger Things, for example, is now on the West End, and that kind of audience is, you know, completely different um, than somebody, than perhaps the people that might be watching Hamlet. So I think when you're when you're trying to attract audiences um, from different demographics and who might be coming with different expectations, I think maybe maybe you will be getting people just looking at their emails. That's
0: outrageous. <laughs> Yasmin, thank you very much indeed. That's Yas- y- Yasmin Abdelmajid. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Israel has killed the deputy leader of Hamas, Saleh al-Aruri, in a drone strike in Beirut, according to Lebanese and Palestinian security sources. Israel has insisted the assassination was not an attack on Lebanon, as its enemies warned of punishment for his death, and Lebanon's Prime Minister accused Israel of trying to drag Lebanon into confrontation. The United States has reached a deal to extend its military presence at a base in Qatar for another 10 years, according to media reports. Qatar is a major non-NATO US ally. The tiny Gulf state has played a key role in mediation talks with Hamas and Israeli officials in relation to the war in Gaza. And Donald Trump has appealed a decision from Maine's top election official, disqualifying him from the state's Republican presidential primary ballot over his role in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The U.S. Supreme Court is likely to consider the issue soon after Colorado's top court barred Trump from the primary ballot in that state. A ruling from the Supreme Court could provide a nationwide resolution to questions surrounding Trump's eligibility. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Fallout shelters and talk of mutually assured destruction were, until recently, thought to be relics of the Cold War. But the risk of a nuclear exchange is no longer merely a scene from Dr Strangelove. Today, the doomsday clock, maintained by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, stands at just 90 seconds to midnight, the closest it's ever been. US diplomat Thomas Countryman has been at the forefront of this sobering topic for over three decades. In 2017, he retired from the State Department after climbing to the rank of acting under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Since then, he's advised the Biden administration and now serves as board chair of the Arms Control Association. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs recently spoke with countrymen and began by asking him if a new nuclear arms race has already started.
2: We are in real danger of sleepwalking into a new nuclear arms race, one that would exceed in cost and in risk what we lived through during the Cold War. It concerns me that Russia is building exotic new weapons. It concerns me that China is expanding its nuclear arsenal from a fairly low level of three or four hundred up to well over a thousand. And I'm concerned here in the U.S. that the nuclear modernization program designed to build new delivery systems, that is, bombers, missiles, submarines, was not intended to increase the size of the U.S. arsenal.
6: The U.S. and Russia have withdrawn from and abrogated a number of treaties over the years. However, they are still bound by the new START, an acronym for Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, which is in effect through February of 2026. What are the terms of that current treaty and what are the prospects for a next round of internationally binding arms control between these two countries?
2: The most important thing about the New START Treaty is that it puts a cap. Each side is limited to 1,550 deployed strategic weapons. There are other requirements, including the two sides reporting to each other every time they move weapons around, and having verification inspections in both countries. Russia has stopped implementing the notification and verification measures, but has said it will stick to the central limit of deployed strategic warheads. If that treaty expires with no replacement or understanding in place, then it becomes not just legal, that is, no further treaty limit on a nuclear arms race, it becomes nearly inevitable that pressure in both sides will lead to an expansion of the number of deployed missiles.
6: I was recently aboard a US Navy ballistic submarine, a nuclear-armed submarine, which I reported on for the December-January issue of Monocle magazine, which is currently on newsstands. And the commanding officer told me they are spending more time in the far reaches of the Pacific, uh, closer to China. And yet, at the same time, there were recently arms control talks between Washington and Beijing. What were the the parameters of those conversations, and are we beginning to see the same groundwork that once upon a time led the U.S. and the Soviet Union to adopt arms control treaties? What are the prospects for U.S. and Chinese binding arms control?
2: There is no such thing as an instant treaty, and the Chinese have shown little enthusiasm for even the basic conversation. The fact that we finally have had a formal discussion between the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control and her Chinese counterpart is encouraging. I don't know the results of that discussion, but I understand it was professional, it was businesslike. I have more confidence today that Beijing is able to address these issues in a straightforward and more rational way than the Russians currently are. But you can't expect an instant agreement. We have a lot of building of common concepts and a little bit of trust building to do as well.
6: Beyond the three nuclear-armed superpowers, what else do you observe in the geopolitical landscape around the question of nuclear non-proliferation or, among the other, smaller-scale nuclear-armed nations, one of which Israel is currently in a hot war with its neighbor or internal population, depending on how you want to characterize it. And India and Pakistan are seemingly in various stages of of high-stakes tensions and and near-military conflict, not to mention North Korean saber-rattling. So what does that landscape look like beyond the U.S., Russia, and China?
2: Well, of course, we don't want to forget the United Kingdom and France as recognized nuclear powers. There has not been much significant change in the arsenals or the nuclear doctrine of those two countries. Let's think about some of the others, though. India and Pakistan came close to a hot war just about four years ago, and it was the first time we've seen in history two nuclear-armed states sending their airplanes to bomb the other's territory with a very high fever of war hysteria in both countries and people asking, when are we going to use our nuclear weapons against the other? In both countries, we were lucky to escape that without resort to nuclear weapons. But I still remain concerned that this is a place where a conventional war between two neighbours can very quickly spill into nuclear war.
0: Monocle's Gregory Scruggs reporting there. You're with Monocle Radio. Somaliland declared autonomy from Somalia in 1991 and ever since has been trying to gain international recognition as an independent and sovereign state. Now the breakaway province has signed a deal with Ethiopia, letting the landlocked country have use of a key port for 50 years in return for recognition and possibly a stake in Ethiopian airlines. Unsurprisingly, the government of the Federal Republic of Somalia sees the agreement as a violation of Somalia's sovereignty and therefore illegal. Laura Hammond is a professor at SOAS, University of London, and she joins me on the line now. Laura, many thanks for coming on the show. I wondered if you could start by giving us a, a sketch of the political landscape and the issues between Somaliland and Somalia.
7: Yes, well, as you say, and Somaliland in 1991 declared independence unilaterally from uh, the Somalia Republic and since that time has been working at developing and establishing a system of government that works quite uh, quite independently of the um, overall state of Somalia. But that recognition that that independence has never been recognized. And so there's been it's been a sort of de facto independence. and Mogadishu still claims territorial control over Somaliland, although, its own ability to enact and to enforce that control is is
0: minimal. And so what's the, the nature of this new deal between Somaliland and Ethiopia?
7: So Ethiopia has uh, been, become a landlocked country since the independence of Eritrea in 1993 and is now seeking to have access both for its military um, sort of positioning within the region as well as its commercial supplies um, and uh, so it's very much interested in Somaliland and its port of Berbera as a source for commercial imports. But it also seeks to establish a, a sort of military base presence somewhere probably a bit west of Berbera, and a 20 kilometre stretch of land uh, so that it can have a naval
0: base that's uh, on the sea. Uh, but this is not actually new for Ethiopia. They've in fact been using that port for some time. Exactly, it isn't. It really isn't
7: that new of a positioning. What's new about it is that Ethiopia has said that in exchange for the concessions to use that space for the next 50 years, it will grant uh, independent or it will recognize Somaliland's independence, which is something that no country has ever been willing to do. Uh, the The position, the international position, has always been that in Somaliland's independence would need to be negotiated with Somalia in order first before any neighboring country or any other country within Africa or elsewhere would recognize their independence. So it's a major move by Ethiopia to recognize the independence of Somaliland. From Ethiopia's position, they would say, we have really no one else to speak to. If we want to gain a a foothold and to make sure that our position in Somaliland is, is secure for the next half century, we really have no one else to speak to except the Somaliland administration. And so we're just doing what we need to do in order to be able to secure that position.
0: And how's the government of Somalia reacted?
7: Uh, As you might expect, the government of Somalia is furious, feels that uh, this is an illegal arrangement that's been made, feels that um, the the founding principles of the African Union have been violated because um, the position has always been that no member of the African Union should recognize a breakaway section of uh, another country. But there are precedents that can be pointed to even within the region when you talk about um, Eritrea or South Sudan. And uh, so Somaliland feels very much that they fall within that realm of of territories and, and that this is uh, a reasonable position to take. But Somalia will continue to, pr- to pursue this as an illegal uh, agreement
0: that's been made. Uh, and what's Somalia, the official government of Somalia's relationship with Ethiopia?
7: They've had a, a troublesome relationship with Ethiopia. It's a very strong neighbor. Uh, It's very often seen as being a meddling neighbor in the politics of Somalia. Um, But at the same time, uh, one in which there are strong economic ties. There have been at times strong diplomatic ties as well. Uh, Ethiopia was one of the contributing forces for the peacekeeping force that's been operating within Somalia for many years. Um, And Somalia as a country is not in a massive position, a massively strong position to carry out... Uh, much of a retaliation to Ethiopia for this agreement that's been made. It certainly can't mount uh, a military campaign against Ethiopia. It really doesn't even have control over its own uh, physical territory at the moment. So what it will try to do is to garner support from other members of the African Union, other countries within the region, most most notably Egypt, to try to uh, get them to stand up against Ethiopia in this in this debate. And are we likely to see violence
0: flaring again in the Horn of Africa?
7: I don't expect a major uh, rift between Ethiopia and Somalia, just for the reason that I've just said, that I don't think Somalia is strong enough mm. to carry out that kind of an act of aggression. Uh, but there may be destabilizing uh, forms of violence that take place um, inside Ethiopia or or in against Ethiopian interests within Somalia or Somaliland. Those we could see in the future.
0: Laura, thank you very much indeed. That was Laura Hammond, and this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. It's time to talk business now with Victoria Scholar, who's Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. Good morning to you, Victoria. Morning. We're going to start with uh, the Chinese electric car market, which appears to be overtaking Elon Musk's company, Tesla.
4: Yes, that's right. So this is China's BYD, which has surpassed Tesla to become the world's best-selling electric automaker. Uh, BYD, or Build Your Dreams, produced just over 3 million cars in 2023 versus Tesla, which made 1.84 million. But um, more than a million of those vehicles produced by BYD are actually hybrids. So in terms of battery only, Tesla is still in the first position. But in the final quarter of 2023, we saw that BYD sold more battery-only cars than Tesla for the first time. So, it's quite a significant uh, milestone in terms of China's uh, progression in this market. And we know that both BYD and Neo, another EV maker, have been trying to expand beyond the chinese borders into international markets particularly in europe which could potentially eat away at tesla's uh, market share and we know that byd is aiming to achieve a sales of around 800,000 cars in europe by uh, 2020 th- 2030 that's per year so some pretty ambitious targets mm.
0: and of course the chinese one of the reasons the chinese uh, electric car market is thriving is that it has had years of state support
4: Yes, that's right. Um, And we know that as well, that in the US, there are lots of subsidies for green technologies. um, And this is the way that the world is going. So uh, there has been government support um, in China, but also in other countries too.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's had big investors, of course, Berkshire Hathaway and so on, uh, putting money into this group. So can Tesla catch up?
4: Well, Tesla still appears to be doing extremely well in this space. Um, it is the real front runner, and uh, its share price was extremely impressive over the last 12 months. We had that uh, sell-off across technology in 2022 uh, when rising interest rates and elevated inflation took their toll on big tech uh, when we saw the uh, the the big sell off in that year, but last year we saw tech stocks like Tesla come storming back. It's up about one hundred and thirty percent over the last year, making it one of the best performing uh, tech shares. Uh, of 2023. Uh, but there are questions about whether that pace of growth can uh, extend into the year
0: ahead. Mm. Now, of course, as we know, a cost of living crisis across the world, but also here in the UK, and that was bound to affect the festive season, although people still spent, but perhaps at cheaper places. Aldi and Little did extremely well.
4: Yes, that's right. We saw that Aldi recorded its best ever festive run up with sales rising 8%, surpassing £1.5 billion for the first time over the four weeks to Christmas Eve. Uh, for the Friday the 22nd of December, so the final fi- Friday before Christmas, was its best ever trading day, there were 2.5 million customers heading to Aldi supermarkets to do their full Christmas shop. Uh, And we saw that Lidl also did very well with sales surging uh, and it enjoyed 4.5 million customers over the month. Um, Like you say, we're in a cost of living crisis, uh, but that seems to have played well into the hands of the German discounters that are known for their rock-bottom prices. there are lots of headlines over Christmas often about their champagnes. Uh, there was a little champagne, uh, for example, that was voted better than Moet and was recently reduced in price to under £10 versus uh, Moet, which is at around £36. Uh, so it feels as though that sort of price sensitivity
0: uh, really played into their hands well. Yeah, absolutely. So if their if their sales were going up, what, what were sales in, in high-end grocery stores? I'm thinking of, I don't know, Waitrose or Marks and Spencers. Were those seeing a drop or was it spending up everywhere?
4: Um, well, what we've seen over the recent months is that... Um, The higher end supermarkets have have struggled a bit compared to uh, some of the cheaper alternatives. Uh, We've seen that all of the supermarkets have been having a real renewed focus on price. There's intense price competition across the UK supermarket space uh, that's forced them to offer discounts and promotions. And also think of other innovative ways to drive customer demand. So, there's been this real renewed focus on uh, loyalty schemes. But uh, Marks & Spencers actually was one of the best performing uh, shares in the UK in 2023. Uh, And that's because it has a clothing and home division, which typically lags its Uh, outperforming food division that actually performed pretty well and um, investors have been encouraged by uh, some of the steps that the management have been uh, taking so uh, that was a real standout stock market winner last year
0: let's go on to have a look at bitcoin which is doing extremely well
4: Yes, that's right. It's had a pretty strong start to the year, um, following on from a very impressive twenty twenty three. So, so far this year, Bitcoin is already up by more than six percent, and in twenty twenty three, it gained uh, over one hundred and fifty percent. So, it's broken above forty five thousand U.S. dollars, um, and longer term, over five years, it's up over a thousand percent. Now, like tech stocks. It struggled in 2022, but it enjoyed this impressive bounce back over the last year. So some are saying that the crypto winter is over with the potential for further gains in 2024. Uh, There are growing hopes that there'll be uh, U.S. regulatory approval for a new uh, Bitcoin exchange traded fund, which would provide significant legitimacy to the cryptocurrency and wider access uh, to traders who will be able to um, invest more easily in crypto and other uh, in bitcoin and other cryptos. Uh, so that's been creating a lot of excitement in the space. Um, but as we know it's a notoriously volatile uh, asset class and while there can be uh, in strong gains, uh, investors can also be uh, left nursing painful losses. so it's not one for the faint-hearted
0: mm. uh, And finally a quick look at apple shares which have fallen.
4: Yeah, so it's been a tough start to the year for Apple. The stock plunged nearly 4% on the first day of trade. Uh, This is on the back of an analyst downgrade from Barclays, which uh, reduced its outlook on the stock and cut um, its assessment to a sell. Um, It's currently trading at about $185 its share price, whereas Barclays sees that falling to around $160 over the next 12 months. Now, Apple was very much a stock market winner over the last year. But um, Barclays are saying that it's suffering from lackluster sales and its iPhone 15, particularly in China, and that could potentially pave the way for weaker sales of its iPhone uh, 16 as well as broader hardware sales. He also, uh, the analyst, pointed to the fact that um, there's been a lack of bounce back, In Macs, iPads and wearables and the services business. uh, He's expecting decelerated growth there because of uh, regulatory scrutiny. So uh, who knows, but it could be a bit of a tougher year ahead for
0: Apple. Victoria, thank you very much indeed. That was Victoria Scholar from Interactive Investor. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio.
8: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com.
0: return after the festive break this week, there's one country looking to start the new year with the basics. Teachers in Switzerland have observed that more and more children cannot read analogue watches or count the months in order. Some school leaders blame the expansion of the curriculum, pushing out time to teach children the basic principles of everyday life. Well, to discuss this further, with me now from Taipei is Bruno Kaufmann, who's Global Democracy correspondent for the Swiss Broadcasting Company. Bruno, what's behind children not learning these old skills?
8: Yes, hello. Yes, I I think this is really showing now in Switzerland the challenges of the digitization of the curriculums, uh, which we have seen in many countries in recent years, that a lot of new knowledge has to be teached while some basics as uh, being able to to really understand an analog watch has not uh, got this uh, uh, interest or attendance anymore and in fact of course also many children and even many adults don't have a analog watch anymore so they have no everyday practice for it and that can have an impact on the on the teaching and of course also the understanding of time
0: mm. but i mean does one does one even need to know how analog works if you've got
8: digital on the outset, of course, you would say it's not necessary. But on the other side, uh, the analog watch provides uh, everyone with different dimensions of understanding how time uh, has a space or how time is really seen. When you see the second, uh, uh, the second hand, for instance, uh, uh, how how it moves uh, from 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 one part to the other, or if you can understand that uh, one and number on the uh, analog watch means different things you are much more able to understand more complex ways of understanding a, a watch or a time mm. space so it's, it's it's in a way a cultural technique which which gets lost when you when you don't know that then
0: and so why are they not being taught this uh, i mean is, is there just so much stuff in the curriculum to get through
8: No, I think the bigger problem probably is really that uh, in uh, in older times, uh, uh, young people, children wouldn't know that already from home, from everyday practice, from all the watches they can see at home uh, outside but this kind of watches are disappearing quickly you don't see them anymore uh, very often and you don't even use watches on your hand in many cases you just have the digital watch on the on the on the on the phone and also and this is a, a concern from the Swiss experience is that uh, more and more children are learning uh, watches and time just mainly in English and not anymore in German. And you express time in different ways. For instance, 130 is not ein und halb in in German, but it's halb zwei. So it's a different kind of system, even for the language. And this influence, of course, also the understanding how you use your own language. Mm -hmm.
0: And I know you've actually had a look at uh, how this has been dealt with in Sweden. What's the difference between Sweden and Switzerland when it comes to this type of, of education?
8: Yes, Sweden has been even even more uh, into digitization in schools and in the curriculums uh, than Switzerland. It has been very much pushing the digital platforms, and this has created something like a like a, a crisis in many ways in uh, Swedish schools. That children don't know anymore how to write by hand. They lose a lot of of basic uh, knowledge, and that has uh, led to the government of today in Sweden, making something like a stop in uh, expanding uh, digital curriculums and going back more to paper and pen and to, in a way, try to reset the whole balance Mm. between uh, offline and online. And this is, I think, an interesting uh, reaction from a country which have been on the front line of digital teaching.
0: Absolutely. Bruno, thank you very much indeed. That's Bruno Kaufman there. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer, Tom Webb and Chris Chermack. Our researcher, Monica Lillis. And our studio manager, Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. And I'll be back with the briefing that's live at midday in London. And The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.